Welcome to a French Village podcast. I am here with my brilliant friend, Benjamin Wittes. Ben, how are you? I am really grateful to not be a foreign Jew in France in 1942, which is to say I am I I do not have meningitis, real or fake. I am uh, not locked in a school building on my way to Drancy, uh, Drancy, and uh, furthermore to Auschwitz. Uh, And I am free to uh, practice whatever uh, distorted version of Judaism I think appropriate. So I'm pretty good. (laughs) Uh, Good, yeah. Um, You know, we we last week. I remember saying, and this is funny of me because I have seen this before, so I should have remembered, but I was sort of complaining that there wasn't enough, you know, whether it was from the resistance or other people. uh, By Cremieux, I think specifically I was talking about, you know, why there wasn't more of an attempt to spring some of the people from the school, make some daring, uh, you know, escape plans, and then I just had forgotten that that's what they do for the the last two episodes of uh, both that we watched, which are the last two episodes of when everybody's in the school, when they're continuing to keep the Jews in the school, continuing to do the roundups. Um, and that sort of brings us to the, the mid-season point. Um, so, so both episodes contained sort of daring uh, escape attempts. Um, did you think... Uh, what did you think about the meningitis plan? Well, um, so I am not, I don't know enough medicine uh, to know how plausible or realistic it is, honestly. Um, uh, I am, um, it didn't work all that well, which is to say it, it works for exactly long enough to get her out of, uh, this is uh, Hélène uh, Cremieux, it works exactly long enough to get her out of the encampment and breaks down on the other side of the fence when the head-measuring so-called doctor figures out that the spots on her neck are actually lipstick. Um, so I don't know how easy it is to fake uh, bacterial or viral meningitis um, and whether, you know, in 1942 you could fake it well enough to fool a quack doctor and some gendarme and Nazi soldiers. Um, uh, you know, it is the case that there were lots of escape attempts uh, from, you know, transits, um, and some of them were successful, and the most of them were not. And so, I do think the, you know, to the extent that there's some license in um, the specific portrayal of this family's effort to save their daughter. Um, I, I think it's pretty forgivable license, but I, I don't know enough, you know, enough of the medical side to have any sense of whether the specific portrayal is plausible. We, we should ask, you know, 
uh, JVL that because, you know, unlike me, he, <laughs> he was rejected from medical school. So he knows more about this stuff than I do. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure how much he knows about meningitis. I certainly don't know anything. Um, I guess it was as good of an attempt as any. Um, I, I mean, you know, I would say the th- something there's something in these two episodes, um, whether it's that you're kind of exhausted by the intensity of the awfulness of it. I mean, one of the one of the things that that is kind of in the background of the episode, but is there to to just give you a sense of the horror is that uh, there is a couple who'd been being kept at the school who had committed suicide and their bodies are just being left in the school where everybody is still being held. And and you learn, this is, I think, spiritually important. You learn that these these are Polish Jewish refugees who realize they are going to Poland. That's right. And they commit suicide. And so we well not only that you learn that they're both lawyers, uh, which I found were there women lawyers in the forties, and so I, I guess I don't know what the Polish legal profession looked like in the forties. Sorry, I can't help you with that. Well, so here, but 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 yes, the 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 thing that there is this conversation that happens between. Um, I guess Sarah and Hortense kind of over the bodies or like in adjacent to it. Um, and Sarah just tell, says, you know, they were both lawyers. And when they heard we were going to Poland, they committed suicide. Are they exchanged glances? Like it was something actually even more subtle than that. There was a look in their eyes. Um, and right. These were people who knew where they, what was awaiting them. Yeah. So, this is an allusion to something, and it is not 100% clear what it is, but here are a couple possibilities. So first of all, we do not know when these people came from Poland to France. Um, so one possibility is that they came earlier, sometime before the war, and this is just some kind of premonition on their part that nothing good could you know, could it could mean nothing good if Nazis are sending Jews to Poland. Uh, the second possibility, which is how I read it, is that they were recent refugees. Uh, remember, Poland was the first country invaded at the, you know, the beginning of World War II in Europe begins with the Nazi invasion of Poland uh, in, in 39. And um, and so and when they went in, they began killing Jews immediately. It was not like um, it was not at all like what happened in France. Um, It was a there were immediate large scale massacres uh, with um, uh, with uh, mostly by machine gun. Um, and one of the reasons that the Vansay conference happened um, in for, in early 42 was that the, this sounds sick to say, but it's really true, the emotional toll on the SS people for overshooting so many Jews in cold blood was uh, high enough that the SS actually decided it needed a more antiseptic way to kill very large numbers of people. And that's where the 
you know, the structured death camp setup came from. And so one possibility here, and this, by the way, continued all the way through 1941 when, um, when as the German troops move ever eastward, they move into what's called the in Jewish history, the Pale of Settlement, which is this strip of large strip of land in what's now Ukraine, Russia, Belarus, uh, uh, and Poland, where just millions and millions and millions of Jews lived. Uh, this was the center of the Jewish world up through uh, Vilnius, which in Lithuania, which was the sort of great center of Jewish learning. Um, uh, and the this is the densest, largest population of Jews in the world. And it's where, you know, the locus of the Holocaust happened. And so as German troops move east, they are just killing enormous numbers of people. Um, and it's mostly not in the early stages in what we think of as the uh, the Holocaust, like death camps and stuff. It is mostly in by two means. One is mobile gas chambers on the backs of trucks. They're just packing people in and driving around and gassing them that way with the exhaust into the uh, into the trucks. And the other is by bringing people out into forests and just shooting very, very large numbers of them. The largest single, I believe, massacre of the, of the Holocaust takes place when the Germans reach the capital of what is now Ukraine, Kiev, and they basically take 50,000 Jews into a park uh, at Babi Yar and shoot them. So one possibility, I suppose, uh, this is a long-winded Holocaust history way of saying, one possibility is that these are recent immigrants or migrants from Poland who somehow in 1939 managed to flee west and south and get to Paris and get to France and know exactly they may not, they don't know about Auschwitz, but they know that what's happening to Jews in Poland is super, super bad. Um, and so they would rather control the circumstances of their own deaths rather than be packed off to it. And I don't know which is the right way to understand this. If there, there may be listeners who have a better sense of from of of who these people are being intimated to be than I do, but I think it's kind of one of those two. Yeah, I think I've been. I was trying to think about how to discuss these two episodes because it, they're they're hard in the sense that they are the horror is at the edges. It is in things like the suicide of the two people um, of those lawyers. It is in. Um, the cruelty of Marchetti sort of lying to Rita and having her mother sent. It's the arbitrariness of who gets saved uh, and who doesn't, but they're kind of wrapped both episodes in like a heisty kind of energy to save specific people, particularly characters that we know and are fond of. And so it's easy to kind of become attached to, um, you know, the, the efforts to get them out uh, as that's like sort of the narrative, but um, they are still, you know, at the end of the episode, 
at the end of the episode two, um, when Barrio, I remember this, like this is another one of those sort of haunting things where he's in the school and it's empty now because they've all gotten on the train. Uh, And he's just sort of sitting in it and saying, clean it up. But you can see all of the things people left behind all of the the belongings that they couldn't take with them because one of the things that you kind of keep hearing people say over and over again is you can't really take money. You can only take 20 pounds. You know, you only get one bat, you know. And so, so much is left behind. And then there's just this empty school where all these people used to be um, and they're just gone and we know where they're going. Uh, and, but, but the, but the, but the story is about everything that happens as as these sort of as people are trying to break people out, you've got multiple escapees. You've got Cone and his daughter, who we saw uh, get out the previous episodes, but circle back in this one. Uh, there is the the uh, resistance. Cremieu wants to get his daughter out. Obviously, he'd like to get both his wife and daughter out, but they have a plan to get the daughter out because she is sick, because she has a fever. They think that they can fake meningitis and get her. Um, evacuated from the camp primarily because the Germans wouldn't want somebody who has a deadly contagious disease near them. Um, and so uh, they, they're they figuring out that way. And then in the next episode, um, Hortense, in an incredibly unlikely, um, not at all in line with her character necessarily, uh, she goes at Daniel's, uh, basically in his stead, she goes to the school to give Sarah some things, some money, some clothes. Um, and, and she sort of just walks into the camp uh, and and then switches clothes with her so Sarah can walk out. Um, and, and I got to say, I think part of what – I didn't love these two episodes. I just don't like them that much in part because uh, because all the horror is at the periphery um, but you still feel it. It's still omnipresent in the episodes. But also, I found both of the both of the rescues, or whatever, stunty and kind of silly and not particularly plausible in my mind. Like, I'll just take the Hortense one, where she just like they have made a whole thing about how it's very like just in the previous episode with Marie. Like, it's she has to have a whole backstory to get into this camp to even see her, right? They're like not letting her in, but she's she's pretending to be a nurse. The principal is vouching for her. You know, she's got uh, various, she's got Lucienne engaged to go get a soldier to help uh, get her in. And then in the next episode, Hortense just kind of walks in um, and to give stuff to Sarah. And then when Sarah does change they like switch ids um and switches clothes and then sarah just kind of walks out uh at which point you know hortense does get a dose of what it's like to be treated as a jewish person person inside this school where a german officer is screaming at her you know threatening to hit her or calling her a jewish pig all this stuff um but of course ultimately we find out she too um is then let out because servier comes and bails her out and, and hortense the whole time I mean, this is plausible enough that she she feels protected by her status, who she is, that she's married to the mayor, um, so that she can she knows that I guess she can get out. But I I just I did find both of the the attempts at escapes not particularly plausible. So that was so I agree yeah. with that. Um, I think they are not the most narratively tight episodes. 
uh, and they do ask you to accept some uh, suspension of disbelief slash improbabilities. That said, if you read the accounts of people who escaped uh, and how, both from in the context of the resistance and in the context of the Holocaust, those stories are really improbable. You know, they it's just we have the stories of the people whose improbabilities came to be and, you know, were improbable but happened anyway, um, not the stories of people whose escapes were improbable and therefore didn't work and they got shot. Um, and, you know, I read one of the earlier episodes, I read from the um, uh, uh, obituary of a resistance uh, figure uh, named de Rochefoucauld, and, you know, he escaped from the SS, uh, you know, dressed as a nun, which is not very different from, you know, what uh, uh, what Marie is doing here. And so I agree, all of these stories individually uh, seem fantastical, and yet uh, there were escapes, and they were daring, and the and they were improbable. They they happened. They succeeded relatively rarely, but the ones that succeeded were people trying crazy things in desperate circumstances. Yeah, uh, there's this. The the other thing is there. Like I, I was talking about the arbitrariness, kind of who survives. It literally happens at one point that Marchetti uh, arrests Barrio, has the. Um, Lariat, the other cop, uh, who's kind of a, he's always around, um, has one of the gendarmes who says that what they carried out the printing press that they, you know, he's he's diming them out for their the printing press they had a few episodes ago. Uh, Marchetti wants him to bring Barrio in. He does. He's there for questioning. Lariat's got the gendarme there too, and then Marchetti walks in and he's all bent out of shape. Uh, over what's happening with Rita and trying to get her free, that he kind of, um, he ends up just flipping a coin. Like, he just, like, says, ask Barrio, like, call heads or tails. Uh, and he flips it, the Barrio calls heads, it's heads. And so he just lets him go uh, and, like, yells at Lariat. And it's just... <laughs> yeah, I don't know. There, and it's, it's, it's and he repeats it, weirdly, uh, in the second episode, too, where then he lets Sophie and Mr. Cohn go. And this is, I, I think what I don't like about these episodes, actually, is that in both Hortense's case, maybe maybe you have a different perspective on this, but in both Hortense's case and in Marchetti's case, they are doing, they both sort of make big gestures that are totally out of step with who we've come to know them as characters. Uh, and so between the heistiness elements and then sort of characters doing things that don't seem in line with who they are, I just, I found, I found them difficult to get my, to, to I don't know, grapple that, with. But what that's did you interesting. Think? Well, I thought the Marchetti thing actually bothered me less. It has an explanation. It does. Um, and the explanation, as I read it, is... Look, this is a guy who is infinitely corrupt. And he has spent these two episodes and the previous two extorting a mother for sex with his daughter 
betraying the daughter after the sex, getting the mother arrested and sent to, you know, her death or whatever they think it is. Um, And he is now, and he does it without a whole lot of hesitation, but he is not, um, you know, Muller. He is not a sadist who particularly enjoys this. He's merely infinitely corrupt. And so he feels guilty about it. And now he is confronted having betrayed the mother and the daughter. And by the way, the daughter doesn't know she's been betrayed. So she's living in his apartment and sleeping with him. Um, And now he is... um, he feels guilty about it. The train has left and the Gestapo has left with it. So there's no immediate pressure to arrest more Jews. Um, And these two escapees walk into his office or are brought into his office. There's no value to him in detaining them. He's already, they've already met their quota. Servier is satisfied. The not the, the Gestapo is gone um, uh, from the town. So there's no value to him in following the rules here and detaining them. And so he gets to alleviate his guilt at no cost to himself. Um, and I think that's exactly the circumstance in which a grand gesture uh, makes sense for a, a, a person who is infinitely corrupt, but has a little bit of, enough of a conscience to want to be able to tell themselves that he's a good guy, which Mueller does not, by the way. Mueller actually enjoys torturing the wife in front of the husband for purposes of coat, right? Um, and I, Marchetti is a horrible person, but he, there's no evidence that he enjoys particularly being the har- being that horrible. Uh, he just does it because it's in his self-interest. Yeah, I, I think that there's no doubt. I agree with that, that he, at the end... Uh shows the kindness to Sophie, the young girl, um, because he doesn't just let them go uh, or not detain them. He gives them a pass. And he tells them, gives them a backstory. He works on their backstory. Gives them a backstory and then, and, and tells them where to go. Um, And so, uh, but I agree that it's, it's quite clear that there is a, um, an attempt to alleviate guilt uh, for himself there. Um, and and to feel like he is uh, has the ability because he's still sort of like an, you know that egomania that comes with being able to confirm mercy um, and so so that I, I I agree that it is more plausible for him um, the Hortense one though uh, I just let me just tell you because I I, I I I'm sorry that this whole that I'm going to spend this whole episode picking apart things in ways that I narratively thought they were extremely weak but like. From the beginning, okay, so Larche, Daniel, loves Sarah and somehow manages to send Hortense instead of going himself for, like, a reason that they give you, which is just, oh, Daniel's not going to get to see her anyway. Uh, 
is no, something they think, it, they think it's a higher chance that a woman gets into the camp to see a woman mm-hmm. than that the mayor gets in to see his people. It's not entirely clear, but but that part didn't bother me particularly. The the escape, the ease of the you know Hortense having a conscience, which you know is itself doubtful. I don't know. Go on. I didn't I just, mean to cut I you just, off. Well, it's just I just didn't I just didn't buy this idea that first of all, and or that Daniel would take a pass on seeing her, um, that he would be desperate, and and he's the mayor, and he has this, you know, he of, like of all the people who could potentially get in. Um, so anyway, I just sort of didn't buy that. It seemed like a weird, and it seemed like it seemed like an explicit setup to get Hortense in there so she can do this thing that to me. Um, you know, is is Hortense acting in a way uh, that is not just contrary to her character, but is like it is it is self um like she's taking she's risking her own she's risking herself, right? And so for somebody who through the show has been selfish and self-interested at absolutely every step, the grandiosity of this particular gesture, Makes no sense to me. What did you think? Um, I, I thought this was a weak part of the episodes, uh, both f- as a portrayal of Hortense's character. She's gone from, you know, sleeping with every disreputable person in the town to, uh, you know, to trying to rescue Sarah, whom she knows to be Danielle's lover at this point. Uh, and there's not a particularly coherent explanation for that change. And then also the ease with which she gets into the camp and the ease with which she's able to switch identity cards with Sarah strikes me as implausible. Um, uh, that said, I found it forgivably so. Um, you know, there's a bias with the apparent exception of the Cremuse and uh, uh, and Madame Morhange, the show has a bias toward the survival of its own characters. And I think you have to discount a little bit realism and keep in mind the aggregate numbers, right? So this is you know, several dozen people among one of many transports that are taking place in the summer, in July of 1942. Um, And, you know, a few characters get out. Um, They happen to be the characters uh, that get out, um, that, that happen to be the focus of the show, but you have to always remember that the Sarah Myers of the world, by and large, by, by a two-thirds to one-third majority, did not survive the war. Uh, the Madame Morhanges of the world, one-third to two-thirds, in France anyway, did survive the war. In Poland, 90% of all of them are killed. Yeah. Um, in But in France, the foreign Jews die by a two-to-one ratio. The French Jews survive by a two-to-one ratio. So you got to keep in mind the aggregate numbers, but it's also fair for the show to say, hey, we can't kill all our main characters. Um, And so we're, you know, we're 
there's a bias in the show towards survival of the people the show is about. Yeah, I'm not objecting to springing Sarah. I'm just hor- giving I'm Hortense. Sarah. Me too. Giving Hortense <laughs> this. I just, I, I, whatever. Uh, I remember as the show proceeds and everything else, I have always thought of this episode, in particular, that moment for Hortense as a incongruent yes. um moment in in who she is. Uh, and I also, I think there's something where like, it's not that I don't think bad characters, I always sort of felt this way about Jamie Lannister in uh, Game of Thrones, not to like mix up our who shows here. oddly a little bit like Hortense actually. Yeah, who like, there is a, I'm just, sorry, spoiler alert on Game of Thrones for anybody listening, but like there is a terrible rape scene uh, that the, that the makers of the show tried to say wasn't a rape scene, but I, when someone's saying no the whole time and also is his sister, uh, I'm going to go ahead and say that that is a pretty textbook. Um, and then they, like, rehab him in uh, this way where he becomes this likable character. And I just think once you've, I, I don't know, I like, this is, Nortense doesn't get, like, big redeemable moments at this point. Uh, right. At least, at least ones but, that aren't earned. Like, you have to really earn some redemption if you're going to do it. But, okay, I I do think Hortense, what, what the show insists on throughout is that the good guys do bad things. De Caverne is a good guy. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't always act like a good guy. And the bad guys sometimes do good things. Hortense is a bad guy. She's trying to win her husband back, oddly, by helping rescue his lover. Um, She's trying, you know, she never does anything for unself-interested reasons, but she's trying to show Danielle that she will sacrifice for him and take risks for him because for some reason having betrayed him in every way that you can betray a marriage, she sort of still feels that she doesn't want him to reject her. She seems offended that he's rejecting her. And so she's trying noble gestures with respect to him. Uh, And of course, like a lot of people, she continues to underestimate the Nazis. She's underestimating the level of evil that she's dealing with. And so she's surprised when... You know, when a Gestapo officer behaves toward her the way Gestapo officers behave. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah, and that was maybe one of the few satisfying moments in these episodes, actually, um, because not that you want to see the Nazis mistreat someone um, or even bad characters be mistreated in that way, but you do, it is, there's something about Hortense having to see up close and experience what people are going through that um, that that should be eye-opening for her. And, like, you are glad to see that she is forced to con- confront how hideous and horrible the treatment is. Um, so there's a couple, and I think, so part of it, too, is that I think both of the, the Marchetti decision and the Hortense decision are meant to be your emotional release valves for all of the tiny ways that these two episodes crush your spirit. Um, and so I guess I just, I guess I just 
the spirit gets crushed in these, and those aren't for me adequate trade-offs. And so let me tell you what I mean in part. The attempt to get Helene out is a failure. So they they do this, then the meningitis thing, you know, they they use lipstick to do the spots and um, the the quack head measuring doctor is just around and they get him to argue for them. But then as he's taking, walking her to the car, he somehow touches her in a way that gets the lipstick on his fingers and realizes it's a fraud and sort of blows the whistle. Kid runs off, Helene runs off. Um, goes to Lucien's house where they're trying to, the kid is genuinely sick. Um, and so they're trying to kind of nurse her back to health. But then Berio shows up, the the Germans are searching. There's a lot of Germans searching throughout these two episodes, but the Germans are searching for her. And so they end up having to like lock her in that closet. And there's- It's the same It's closet. the same closet. And I will tell you, these are one of my favorite things about this show. Um is that this show does a very good job with its sets creating for the audience a sense that you know the town and the location um, and, like, the crevices of places where these people exist. And so the fact that we had already had a whole storyline about this particular closet uh, and how, you know, no one had the key and that's where the the Christmas uh, Christmas decorations are supposed to be held or the, or the birthday cell, I can't remember um, exactly, but like, you know that closet. <laughs> and and uh, so when they put her in there, like you, you have a sense just for what it is. So I, I do like that about the show. Um, but the, but, they they then the Germans come in and they they pull back. Lucienne is sort of very pregnant now in bed. They pull back the covers and find the Helene's got a little toy, you know, lamb that she's like a stuffed animal. Um, they find it and it you know tips them off that Helene is probably somewhere. They start looking. They try to get in the closet. No one's got the key. Lucienne kind of fakes going into labor. Um, so that to get rid of them and it, it, it works, um, it works there. Uh, but then Beria leaves and that fake labor turns into real labor. And so now it is, Lucienne is alone with Helene, goes into labor and is like, and passes, passes out, out in pain. and, and Helene is put in this horrible position of having to give herself up by going for help which she does, and the Germans are still there, and they are waiting for her, and they take her away. And so the entire episode that has built the plot towards getting this young girl out is quashed, and she is given back to her mother. Um, and that is, you know, it's just a, it's just one of the, it's just, they, they, they it is sort of a crushing loss because you want her to get to her father, who you know is with Marie, and they're all putting themselves on the line for it. Uh, and so, yeah, I just found it, you know. Yeah, so there's one redeeming feature of this horrible sequence, and that is Lucienne, who has finally uh, shed her what my uh, French pronunciation coach, Eve uh, Goumont, calls goldfish energy. Um, and this, you know, this uh, young woman who is, uh, like, starts the show as, like, a list of bad life choices, you know, uh, generally very costly ones, 
is now uh, not only tolerating her husband's resistance activity, she is actively hiding this child. Uh, she is doing a great job faking labor to get rid of the Gestapo, which, by the way, can get you killed. Um, and uh, and she's delighting in it. There's a wonderful little moment where she's faking the labor. They get, you know, the Gestapo guys flee in terror because there's nothing more scary to, you know, machismo than a woman in labor. And, um, and, you know, Berio lies her down in the bed in this demonstrative show for the, uh, for the fleeing Gestapo guys. And then they exchange a grin um, as they're out the door, a big hug. And then Berio says, one more? And she screams in pain again uh, with a big smile on her face. Uh, it's Lucienne's best moment in the show, in the show so far, I think. Um, and, uh, and I think, and after Hélène is recaptured and the baby is born, she's the one who's crying, um, because, you know, yeah, she got her baby, um, delivered safely, um, but the objective was not achieved. And Berrio uh, is trying to comfort her and says, we did everything we could, which is totally true. Um, but, you know, her tears represent the idea that everything you could isn't good enough, um, which is, I think, a lot of a lot of what the good guys in the show are experiencing a lot of the time. And so I thought actually that was one narrative thread in the in the show that worked in this episodes that worked really well and that I thought were redemptive uh, in a serious way toward a character that I've you know rather disliked uh, up until now. Yeah, I think one of the reasons I end up defending Lucienne in the earlier episodes is that obviously I'm just I I have a more holistic view of her throughout the show and. Um, you know, and this is, but this is a good example of a character kind of earning their arc, earning their redemption narratively, um, where it is slow over time and a series of choices that make sense, um, and loyalty shifting. And like, there's another moment actually where she kisses Barrio for like, what is probably not the first time, but like maybe the first time, like with any amount of real, genuine, either passion or affection, uh, and it is also, it, it, and it comes from the place of them doing this thing together that they both value. Um, and I think, like, that I find very, I find that part all believable, that they're being brought together by both doing something that matters to them in this moment. Yeah, and, you know, Berio continues to grow in the estimation of the viewer, at least of this viewer. He's, he's got his quirks. But on all the biggest things, he's right where you would want him to be and in a very Marie-like way without asking a lot of questions or spending a lot of time thinking about consequences. Um, he's just doing what needs to be done. He's very brave when they bring him in for questioning uh, about the printing presses in that scene that you referred to earlier. 
Uh, he's uh, and he's you know they ask him about his Freemasonry past, and he responds, you know, if you say so. Um, like he seems to actually not be that afraid of them. Um, I, you know, he's like doing the things that need to be done uh, in difficult circumstances, including caring for his wife when she's eight months pregnant and has a um, and has a sick kid hiding from the Gestapo in their apartment. So like, you know, he's like, we should, uh, we should be a, we should take a moment to appreciate Berio as well as Lucien. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. There's one other sort of crushing moment, a small moment, uh, that's like, to me, was just too bleak for words. And it is, um, when Servier comes shortly before the train is leaving and he comes to thank Mrs. Morhage for how wonderful she's been and all the service that she's provided. Uh, and it, it is, um, and, 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 to see her not, she's not like glowing in his praise, but she is, you know, it's nice to be thanked probably. Uh, but there's just something so um, awful about what Servier has done to her. And uh, and she, in fact, you know, while Sarah uh, is spared from this, as is Mr. Cohn and Sophie, uh, Morhange is gone she's been put on the train. And so this, this idea of Servier thanking her, um, and like, yeah, we really couldn't have done this without you. Um, there's some, there's a real, there's a real knife twist, uh, in that. And, um, Helene and her mother, so both Kremu's wife and daughter are gone. Um, and yeah, just gone. Yeah. So Servier continues to be one of the most disgusting people in the show. Um, and, uh, there's a interesting, uh, I think there's several interesting aspects of his behavior in this. The first is, as you point out, that he's, you know, thank you. I won't forget you, mm -hmm. Madame Morhange, though I know you're a French Jew and you shouldn't be here at all. And I'm doing, I've done nothing to get you out. Um, thank you for all your help in making these people uh, cooperate with my efforts to get them out of my jurisdiction so the Nazis can kill them without me having to be involved. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I'll keep your situation in mind and I'll raise it. Um, you know, he he continues to be the the most disgusting of the French officials. He also, knowingly or unknowingly, lies to the people about where they're going. They have figured out that they are going to Poland, um, and he tells them the lie, which was, in fact, this is, this is real, that they are going to Derancy, um, which is the French transit camp uh, that we discussed last week. And so, and he tells them that it was built for gendarme barracks and families 
which was actually true. That's why it was originally built. Um, it has been, uh, it functioned not as a labor camp or as a, you know, as a internment facility, but as a, a detention transit camp on the way to gas chambers. And so he basically calms them down, telling them you're not going to Poland, you're going to, you know, a facility built for the gendarme on the outskirts of Paris. Um, and, you know, this is, he's maybe convinced himself of this. Um, uh, it is a horrible, horrible means of control to, you know, have their government lie to them about what's happening to them. And so he does this at the same time as he's effectively lying to Madame Morhange and saying, you know, I'm gonna, I'll remember the service that you provided in helping me keep these people under control. So I'm, I, I really, my loathing for Servier continues to grow. Yeah, mine too. He, He's up. he has he has actually passed Hortense in this episode um, for me. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that just about this moment again in in these sort of these moments that pass by quickly but are sort of devastating uh, is that they're told in that moment he tells them. They were like, what about our kids? They're still separated from their kids. And he says, oh, you know, we're going to figure it out. Maybe they'll join you. Um, and it's one of those things where in that moment, after seeing them revolt over the children or or be, you know, have lots of big reactions, and here they're, they sort of murmur, you know, it's like it's all been beaten out of them. Uh, and... They don't fight what's happening because, you know, he's telling them the possibility that they'll get their kids back. But they are being put on a train without their children. Um, and that's clear. Uh, and it's, yeah. Yep. It's, you know, they, if you walk into a neighborhood and start killing people, they fight you. If you strip step by step everything they have from them and at each moment they have they have reason to comply one of the things the nazis figured out is that that is much more effective you can get compliance with mass murder to a much higher degree if you if you do it in phases. And this was how they did it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I just, I, I think it, 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 it is, it, this one, the, the, there is the banality of evil all through this episode, the quietness of how horrible it is. Um, and but you've but you've raised a really interesting question that I want to I've I've been thinking about it since you raised it at the beginning of the episode. I'm going to do a little bit of research on over the coming week, which is what was the how how, how did people escape from these transits um, and how 
how often did it happen and how, you know, how much of it was the way Cohen got out, which is just, you know, slipping somebody a 20 um, and how much of it were, were these more sort of daring uh operations and i don't really know the answer to that and i'm i'm curious about it now is is this should we understand the improbability of these episodes as yeah every time this shit happened it was improbable but it did, it did happen or should we understand it basically as narrative license yeah i mean i don't know i, I just i find the mr cohen cohen giving up his wedding ring to a gendarm to like get out like that seems totally plausible that sounds like a way somebody would get out um Hortense walking into the camp, switching clothes and IDs, and Sarah being able to just walk out. Like after they've already in the in the in the other in the case of Helene, we've are we've like been de- being told how difficult it is to get in and out. Uh, just struck me as um, uneven. Uh, but one other thing that so, but I would be interested in in hearing about the escapes um, and how many of them there were uh, from your research. The one other just piece of storyline that's going on with the resistance is that um, Cremieux and Marie and Barrio, you know, they've got this guy Victor who is asking for information uh, about the concrete business that Schwartz runs, and it turns out, you know, he has found. Um, Janine's plans to, you know, extend a runway somewhere, uh, and he is able to give the plans to Victor or to Marie, who gives them to Victor, uh, who says um, something absurd about how she did a good job, but, like, for a woman or something. Uh, Now I can't remember exactly what he said. Uh, And also seemed to also say something anti-Semitic uh, as well, right? He says something about, I can't remember what he says. Usually I'm better than this, but I forget. The It's about Cremieux and that they're, uh, uh, she raises the issue of saving Cremieux's family right. and he says that, you know, Jews are always super emotional about their own circumstances. Uh, again, just not believing that the family is going to be killed believing instead that the family is going to be, you know, away for a few months. Yeah, Uh, that's right. Uh, And then the, but, and then also Janine figures out that Schwartz has been through her stuff, confronts him when he gets back. Uh, The maid tries to take the fall for it. uh, And And she fires the maid. And she fires the maid on the spot, (laughs) even though Schwartz cops to it. Um, Janine goes through maids pretty quick. She does. She seems like maybe not a great boss. Maybe. No, she's not, not a great person. Not a great person. Um, okay. Well, I gotta, I'm just going to admit that I am glad we are through the six episodes of the school. Um, the train, yeah. It, it, and, 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 uh, and I think it is as depleting, uh, or, yeah, it's just they're just sort of de- depleting episodes, uh, and I, I remember feeling this way last time. And- really, really looking forward to getting back to affairs among the principal characters, <laughs> um, to uh, daring do, um, uh, uh, and to uh, uh, really, really unhealthy marriage relationships. That's I think 
like the mood I'm in now in with respect to the show, I, I find that stuff much just easier to handle than train loads of people going to their deaths. Yes. Um, all right, everybody. Uh, I'm just going to, I have been remiss in not doing this enough, but I am going to say at the end of this episode, and I will try to remember it the, do it at the future of other episodes, which is to remind people that if you like the podcast, please do go sign up for Bulwark Plus. There are our subscription service uh, where you get all the premium products. We like keeping this stuff free so that anybody can listen to it. And we can have these fun conversations. But uh, if you get a chance. And you get, <laughs> and you get access to the secret podcast, which will, if you listen to it, it will explain all the JVL references <laughs> and the uh, what must seem to you uninitiated people as an unmotivated feud, uh, one-sided feud between me and uh, some poor guy with the initials JVL. If you listen to the secret podcast, you will understand that my posture is the reasonable one in this relationship. And he's really uh, he's really the one with a bee in his bonnet about me, not the other way around. That is right. Uh, that is right. <laughs> uh, all right. But you can't know that unless you sign up for Bulwark Plus and listen to the secret podcast. And also you'll understand the dance that Sarah is doing in the introduction where she can't call me her best friend. She can't call. So she's like figured out this way to navigate. It's like, you know, one of these French village mm-hmm you know, psycho situations where she's kind of caught between, you know, Mueller and, you know, someone else. I don't know, like, you know, like if she puts her foot in the wrong place, someone's going to put out a cigarette on her arm. Yeah, I think that that's maybe an overstatement slightly about (laughs) how this goes. But if you want to hear me and JVL talk about politics as opposed, uh, in addition to me and Ben talking about this television show uh, about France in 1942, uh, I would encourage you to do so. Uh, All right. Thanks, everybody. We will see you next week. Ben. Uh, Yeah, and you'll also get this joke in a way that you probably don't. Edith, take us home.